So good to be back with you again and uh, bring to you the Word of God. Uh, took a little vacation last week and always enjoy that. I always enjoy getting away, but I even enjoy more coming home. It seems counterintuitive. You know, you look forward to leaving for so long, and then as soon as you're gone, you want to get back. Um, discontentedness, I'm not sure what that is. But uh, anyways, it was good to be gone, but it's better to be back and be with you and uh, worship the Lord together and hear from Him. I am going to be preaching to you from the book of Philippians this morning, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 20, focusing primarily on the end of verse 18 through 20. And we're going to see some important things in this text today. And I want to begin by by asking some questions to get you thinking the way I'm thinking. Most people uh, want their lives to matter, right? Do you want your life to matter? I think you probably do if you're like most people. Uh, We we want our lives to have some lasting impact. Uh, I, I think most of us hope that we will have some influence, uh, some impact on something or someone. So are you confident that your life will leave a meaningful imprint in the world? As it stands, are you confident that your life will leave a meaningful imprint in this world? Let's read Philippians chapter 1. Verses 18b through 20. Yes, Paul says, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This little passage is chock full of ways that you and I can leave an impact, have an impression on this world. He says that he's going to rejoice for a few reasons. Now, I'm going to work backwards through this text, starting in verse 20 and then working backwards to that that phrase, yes, and I will rejoice, because... That word is the main controlling verb, I will rejoice, in this text. How did Paul get to that place? How did Paul get to the place where he was able to rejoice in spite of his horrible circumstances? Remember, he was in a Roman prison. And he is here rejoicing. How did he do that? Well, this letter was not written to show us what Paul had accomplished in God's kingdom, You could misunderstand it and take it that way. But this letter was written to bring us along with him as joyful partners in God's kingdom. Joyfully leaving an imprint for those who follow. If you would like to be a joyful gospel partner, you must pursue what Paul reveals in this text. A godly objective with godly confidence. Do you want to be a joyful gospel partner? Then you must pursue a godly objective 
with godly confidence. And this passage shows us how to do that. So pay attention, Sun Valley Church, this morning. Those of you who want your lives to matter, this passage tells us how. First of all, we must have a godly objective. Verse 20 makes this clear. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That was Paul's objective. There are many different things that you can do with your life, of course, and many objectives would fit with being a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you are guided by particular principles for living. Uh, and as those principles were found in God's word. And they carry a, an overriding objective. So you can be a school teacher or doctor, lawyer, orchardist, contractor, but whatever you are, you are a Christian with that vocation. We, we need to keep this clear in our minds. We are not teachers who are Christians or orchardists who are Christians or plumbers who are Christians. No, we are Christian teachers, Christian plumbers, Christian orchardists. So when you find, meet someone new, what's the most common question you hear? What do you do, right? Well, the first thing out of our mouths is usually our employment, right? I want to encourage you to maybe think of something else to say. How about this? What do you do? I'm a Christian. <laughs> that is actually what you do. And you do that and you support that by being a plumber, by being a teacher. That's the view I want you to think about. And it's reflected here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, as minute, minute as that, whatever you do, whether you're a doctor or a carpenter, do all to the glory of God. What this simply means is that we are created and saved and blessed to make much of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. Whatever you do, what is it you do? I'm a Christian who pays the bills by fill in the blank. Do all to the glory of Christ. We've been saved to make much of Jesus. This is Paul's godly objective. To honor Christ with his body, whether by life or by death. That should be your objective. That should be my objective. What do you do? I honor Christ. I make much of Jesus. That's what I do. I just happen to work at the school. This, this word in verse 20, honored, you can see there, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That word honored doesn't do justice to the word that Paul wrote. In the original language, the word he used was megaluno, mega luno. If I'm on a mega diet, I'm not going to eat for a week. All right? If I want to do a mega climb, I'm going to try Mount Rainier. If I'm going to have mega millions, it's going to be a lot of money. Paul's saying here, I want my life to have a mega impact on the world for Christ. It's not just honor. Thank you, Your Honor. No, it's making much of Jesus, mega of Jesus. Friends, we only have one chance to glorify God. 
You've only been given one life. You don't get another life. You don't get a different life. You have one shot to make it count for Christ. However many years you live, whether short or long, you have one life. You're not going to get a second chance to make much of Jesus. Not only do you only have one life with which to make much of Jesus and glorify God, you only have one instrument in this life with which to do that. And here it is, your body. Paul said that he was going to do everything he could to make much of Christ with his body, whether he lived or whether he died. What a godly objective. This ought to be our objective. You have one body, which is why Paul said this to the Roman church in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers. I plead with you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what we ought to be doing, presenting our bodies, making much of Christ as mega as we can, whether we live or whether we die. Well, let's think about this for a minute. How can you make much of Christ with your body? Let's take some body parts to make this real practical. We'll begin with the eyes. Uh, would you agree that our culture turns on the human eye? Think about that for a second. Do you understand that our culture turns on the human eye? The American culture would disappear if we were all blind. It would be a completely different society. If none of us could see... Our, our eyes, this, this gift of God, vision that God has given us, draws us into all of life, both good and bad. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had a lot to say about the influence of our eyes. He said that the eye is responsible for all kinds of sin to begin with. Sexual sin, the sin of materialism, the sin of envy, all starts here in the eye. But he also said in that same sermon that the eye can teach us how to trust God by simply watching things, by using our eyes. He goes, take the flower, for example. Does it worry? Take the bird, for example. Does it... Look at the bird, look at the flower. You can learn from them by watching them to trust God. So your eyes can be used to glorify God or glorify yourself, is what Jesus said. To make much of Jesus or to make much of you, your eyes. Next, how about the tongue? It's another body part that we need. Unfortunately, it gets away from us at times, doesn't it? Have you ever been a part of a damaged relationship where the tongue was not involved? I will take that to be no. All of us, every time there is a damaged relationship, it's the result of this thing, right? Hasn't most of our trouble in life come as a result of our tongues? James chapter 3, you remember that book? James chapter 3 talks a lot about this problem of the tongue in clear terms. James tells us that the tongue is the source of a constant struggle in the life of every believer. And it's the most difficult member of our bodies to control. In fact, he says if you can control your tongue, you're a perfect person. 
In other words, you can't control your tongue. <laughs> we struggle with gossip, lying, hurtful words, deceit, along with many other vices that flow out of our mouths. But we can also use the tongue, James says, to bring praise to God, to make much of Jesus, to encourage one another. Which will it be? You can make much of Christ with your eyes. You can make much of Christ with your tongue or not. How are we supposed to control this thing that gets in the way and gets us into trouble? Even as Christians who have been given the Holy Spirit, our tongues are a challenging thing. How do we control it? This brings us to the next body part, the mind. The control of the tongue must begin in the mind. When you come to faith, when God saves you, he, he does so by regenerating your heart, by giving you a new heart. We've talked about that a lot here. But our minds must also be renewed along with our hearts. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, 12, rather, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then he brings up one body part that's particularly important to presenting your bodies. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The first thing that came to Paul's mind about how to teach us to use our bodies to make much of Jesus was get a hold of your mind. Have the word of God transform how you think. That's where it must begin. The renewal of the mind. We must train our thoughts to be captive to obedience of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Jesus in Matthew 12.34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak. What's in here, what comes out of our heart and mind is what you and I hear each other say. So, to control your tongue, one must begin in the heart, which, if it's regenerated, works its way to the mind in a transforming way, and out of the overflow of this renewed heart and mind spills out of the mouth things that make much of Jesus. So, has the renewal of your heart begun, friend? Have you come to Christ by faith and receive the merit of his life on your behalf? He came to this earth, as you know, to live that perfect life, which God requires of each of us, but we can't seem to pull off. So God came and lived that life for us. If we embrace Christ, if we embrace and believe in Jesus, then God credits the life of Christ to us. By faith. All his perfection is given to us. And so we stand before God perfect. Which is hard to believe. Especially after thinking about our tongues recently. So has the renewal of your heart begun? There is no way to magnify God's goodness and grace with your eyes, your tongue, and your mind without first the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that begins to transform the mind. So has the renewal of your heart begun? Is the renewal of your heart ongoing? 
Can you tell that the Holy Spirit is working on you? Sanding down those rough edges in your life? Maybe helping you think a little bit longer before you speak? Being a little more patient with those in your life who maybe don't deserve it? Can you see the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind? It's a daily thing. It can be a wonderful blessing if at conversion everything was complete, wouldn't it? I mean, of course we're saved completely the moment you come to Christ. You don't have to work for your salvation by any means in any way. But we all know because of our experience and because of Scripture that the moment we're saved doesn't mean we're perfect, obviously. And so it's a process. This, this requires daily intentionality. It requires each of us to saturate our minds with God's Word where the Holy Spirit lifts out the character of God and washes our mind and heart with His character. It requires each of us to submit to the will of God found in the Scriptures. It requires each of us to connect to God's people on a daily basis consistently. The renewal of your heart always results in making much of Jesus with your body. So what does making much of Jesus in your body look like more particularly? Well, Paul said, Christ is honored my body, whether by life or by death. How is Jesus made much of in your life? By living. Well, that's obvious. That's an easy one. It's going to be a little more difficult to explain this to you when it comes to how does death do that. But let me explain to you life first. How about this? How do we make much of Christ with our life? Obedience to all of Scripture. When you come across a command in Scripture, here's an idea. Obey it. When, when the Bible says, grow in holiness, then do so. When Jesus said to give of your wealth, then do so. When Paul said, serve, love, and fellowship with others, then do so. Prioritize a relationship with God. Being in the Word, being in prayer, being in worship. Participating with the body of Christ. How else do we make much of Christ in our, in our bodies? Controlling our tongue, avoiding gossip, being encouraging, etc. Controlling our eyes, avoiding anything that would dishonor Christ by what's going through that gateway into our whole souls. And then, of course, controlling your mind. Avoiding lust, avoiding bitterness, anger, thinking on good things, Philippians 4, 7 and 8. This is how we honor Christ with our life. This is how we make much of Jesus. But how do we do so in death? Paul said that he did this in life or death. How can we make much of Jesus in death? It seems that Paul's connecting this idea. How can we do that? You ever heard of a legacy? What's a legacy? A legacy is something you leave behind after you die. We would all be able to say something about Abraham Lincoln's legacy or about Martin Luther's legacy. It's something these guys have left behind that, as a result of the way they lived, the way they thought, the way they treated people. This is what I'm talking about. You can certainly leave a large sum of money to your children as a legacy. It's a good thing if you can do that. You can leave a work ethic to your family, to your friends, which is a good thing. 
But leaving a godly legacy is what I'm talking about, what Paul's talking about, and what is most important. The legacy I'm thinking of is a legacy of a godly character, one that has made much of Christ consistently day after day after day, and then you stop breathing. What better way for your children, your spouse, your friends, not only to remember you after you die, but to follow in your footprints? That's making much of Christ in your death. Instead of, man, I'm glad he's gone. Wow. Now we can get back to normalcy here. No. Friends, Christ must be made much of in our bodies, both in life and in death. God must be magnified in our bodies as Christians because this is the only way the world will ever see Jesus. You know that we are the road sign as Christians. People driving down the road of life and they never have a view of Christ until they see a road sign and that road sign is your life. 1 John 4.12, the apostle John says, no one has ever seen God. That's a problem. If God is the only way to be saved, God is the only way to heaven, and no one's ever seen him, now what? And then he says, if we, Christians, love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. The world sees Christ through us who have him in our lives. When we make much of Christ, the world sees Jesus. This is part of what it means to be a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your life, the way you live your life, the way you make much of Jesus at work, at home, in your neighborhood, at the bank, the way you make much of Jesus wherever you are is, is part of what it means to be a partner in the gospel. So a godly objective that is to make much of Jesus in our bodies, whether in life or in death, comes from, look at verse 19. Remember, we're working our way backwards. Verse 19 says it comes from a godly confidence. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, Christ will, Christ will, this will turn out to be uh, for my deliverance. Paul says in verse 19 that he knows. He goes, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. How does he know that? He doesn't say, I wish, I hope. He says, I know. What does he know? It says there that he knows that he'll be delivered. Verse 19. Remember, he's in jail, right? But I want to, I want to suggest to you that he's not talking about getting out of prison, as if that's his goal in life. Because he says he's going to be honoring Christ, making much of Christ, whether he's in prison or whether he's dead. Whether he's alive or dead, he's going to make much of Christ. So he's not talking about his deliverance from prison. He knows that he'll be delivered. But he doesn't know whether he'll live or die. So he, he can't be talking about his freedom from jail. It may mean that He's referring to his final deliverance in the presence of God, that salvation, that one day he'll be in God's presence. That's possible. Or it may refer to deliverance from 
ministry unfaithfulness. Deliverance from living selfishly his whole life and never leaving an imprint, never having an impact. And I think that's what he's talking about. I know that I will be delivered from that kind of a life. He's confident that his life will bear fruit. Secondly, down into verse 20, he knows that he will not be ashamed. Now, when you and I think of the word ashamed, we're thinking of something different than what Paul was thinking of. When we think of ashamed, we say, well, I'm ashamed of my car. (laughs) Have you seen it? I'm ashamed of my test scores. They were really bad. Sorry, I didn't study enough. That's not the kind of shame he's talking about. No, Paul uses this word to mean disappointment. I am confident that I will never be disappointed in Christ, ever. According to Scripture, the person who is not ashamed, the person who is never disappointed, is the person who trusts the Lord. Paul is saying that he is confident that he has not misplaced his hope. He is not going to be disappointed. Jesus doesn't disappoint people. So he knows that he will be delivered from a life of fruitlessness. He knows that he will not be disappointed. And thirdly, he knows that with godly courage, look there in verse 20, with godly courage, he will honor Christ with his body, whether he lives or dies. Paul knows these things. He knows that God will grant him all the courage he needs to do whatever is necessary to always make much of Jesus. He's confident that God won't just let him do it on his own. Good luck, Paul. No, that's not what Paul thinks. How can he know this? How can Paul be so confident? What's it based on? Well, what's the verse say? Look at it. This is amazing. For I know, how do I know? Through your prayers, he says. Because of prayer? I've heard the skeptics, as have you. If God is sovereign, why pray? You ever heard that question? Maybe you've asked it a few times. If there's any biblical author that believed that the sovereignty of God is for real, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet he writes here that it is through the prayers of God's people he will be delivered, he'll not be disappointed, and he'll have the godly courage to make much of Jesus through prayer, their prayer. So let's answer the question, if God is sovereign, why pray? The answer is actually very, very simple. We pray because just as God ordains the outcome He ordains the means to that outcome. He doesn't just say, building be painted. He says, Christian, pick up a paintbrush and paint the building. He doesn't just ordain the end and then say, be. He says, no, be, and here's how. Be through prayer. So God ordains the means, certainly, We understand that, but he also ordains the means to get there. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 11. 
He delivered us from, from such a deadly peril and will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now listen, you must help us by prayer. This is the Apostle Paul who believes in the sovereignty of God. You must, must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul is saying your prayers are critical to the outcome. Our prayers aid in the spiritual growth and fruit bearing of others. The reason you bear fruit is because the person sitting next to you is praying that you will. Do you know that the gospel advances in the world by your prayers? Are you praying for the salvation of your neighbors? I just wish my neighbors would come to Christ. Are you praying for that? Are you praying that your civic leaders make good decisions? Then don't complain when they don't. Are you praying? Paul is obviously here saying, and the New Testament supports this and so does the Old, that God sees and uses the prayers of his people to affect the outcome, his predetermined outcome. Do you pray for our missionaries at Sun Valley Church? Now this may... Uh, <laughs> You may not believe this. I'm going to tell you anyways. And I'm not all into experiences. But two hours, two and a half hours ago, I was rehearsing this. And when I got to that point in this rehearsal, pray for the missionaries, pray for Sun Church, pray for SVC. Hold on, I forgot my phone. At that very moment, I received this text. At that second, I received this text this morning. Praying for you right now, just wanted to remind you <clears throat> that the Lord has purposed many to pray for you, your family, and the ministry he has called you to. Are you praying? For the spiritual growth of the people in your family? Are you praying for the salvation of your neighbor? Friends, we pray here every Sunday that God would accomplish his will and our desires. We pray together in our small groups. Many of you pray together as families during your family worship time that God would bless, protect, and use Sun Valley Church for his glory. That he would extend the gospel through our missionaries. Are you praying we also have church prayer meetings on a regular basis. It would be wonderful to see you there. God uses the prayer of his people to accomplish his purposes. Through your prayers, we can actually live lives that make much of Christ at Sun Valley Church. Through your prayers, my life can be more honoring to God. Your prayers change the course of your kids' lives to be honoring to God. Pray. Pray, pray. 
So God uses your prayers to accomplish his purposes. This is how, how, what was Paul's godly confidence based on here that he would actually be, live a life full of fruit, making much of Jesus Christ from beginning to end, whether by being alive or by being dead? Well, he was confident because of the prayers of God's people combined with the help of the Holy Spirit. You see that in the verse? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out. There is a great and necessary benefit with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul is not only speaking of the Holy Spirit himself, who of course is primary. We are not Christians without the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I think beyond that, Paul is also thinking of the benefit that the Holy Spirit brings to the life of the believer. Hope, comfort, insight, wisdom, inner, uh, that enlightenment when we read the scriptures, unity with other believers, that's from the Spirit working in us and through us. The Holy Spirit draws people to God. He regenerates the heart. He causes spiritual growth. When you pray, ask the Holy Spirit to do this work. Do his work. Through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm certain these things will happen, Paul said. On top of all of this, here's an amazing thing that should humble us. You say, I'm not, I can't really pray to him. I'm not a very good prayer. Guess what? The Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Romans 8, prays when you can't. Prays for you. Fills in. I just don't know what to pray for that person. I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know what God wants. Just be quiet and say, Holy Spirit, pray for me. Pray to the Father on my behalf. Pray the, the will of Jesus to the Father for me. I don't know what to pray in this situation. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, does just that. When you're at a loss of what to say, what to pray, what to think, the Holy Spirit takes over for you and finishes your prayers. And if the Holy Spirit's praying on your behalf, you know God's listening. So we have a godly objective, which is to make much of Jesus. We have godly confidence that that will happen. And then we have here in verse 9 or 18b a godly result. What is it? Yes, and I will rejoice. This is going to make me overflowing with happiness. That God has determined to help me embrace a godly objective with godly confidence that will result in godly joy. And the, the confidence that Paul exudes in these verses is awesome. He knows that Christ will be exalted in his body because of the prayers of the Philippians and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he says, yes, I will rejoice. What, what else are you going to say? What a response, friends. Our faithful prayers for one another will be taken by the Holy Spirit and used to make much of Jesus. 
And what does that, how do we respond to that? With joy. Friends, the Holy Spirit will take your prayers into the presence of God and apply them on your behalf, which will cement your commitment to godly objectives in your life and give you godly confidence. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we first come to you in our prayer here as we conclude our service together. And thank you for this miraculous participation in our lives. First of all, regenerating us, making us new, giving us a new heart and renewing our mind in the process. And then doing these things for us, bringing us more into Christ-likeness, helping us to become more like Jesus, reflecting his character, giving us his objectives, following his example. God, I ask that each person in this room, first of all, will genuinely, authentically know you, that they will make much of Jesus their entire life with their bodies, with their eyes, their, their mouths and their minds, that they will make much of Jesus in every moment and be confident that God is, is going to continue to do this, be confident that God will accomplish his purposes in our lives through one another's prayers and the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be a praying people. Help us to be committed to pray for one another, to pray for the kingdom of God to continue to grow and come to us. Father, bless these words that we've read this morning, that we've heard. Use them to solidify our objectives in life and our confidence in accomplishing those objectives. Be glorified in us, whether we live or whether we die. Bring us joy that you've promised. Amen.